Ronin Rescue Cast number 10. I told you folks we were going to be putting these out kind of quick. We have now hit double digits. Small golfers clap all around, rum and cokes, away we go. I'm here with Jay still, and uh, because we just finished number nine, but we're going to chat a little bit about number 10. We're going to do something here that's a little bit more near and dear to my heart and put Jay on the spot a little bit. That's not what's near and dear to my heart. But what we're gonna chat about is some of the different influence in rope rescue. The different influences that are out there in rope rescue. Because as we've gone around and we've done a bunch of training with a bunch of different people pretty much around the world now, there's some general influences that are affecting a lot of people. And then there's some, you know, those outside kind of fringe influences that are picking up here and there as well. And so just gonna add a few in here and we're gonna have a quick little chat about them. And what we're gonna start with is the big obvious one, the NFPA, National Fire Protection Association, 1983, 1006, 1670, 1500, I could go on and on and on. This has definitely been a large influence in rope rescue. It is pretty much the only rescue standard out there in regards to rope rescue, in regards to the JPRs, and that's both rope and confined space as much as all the other ones. And it's kind of led us astray in some aspects and it's kept us on a, on a road in some aspects. So it's good and bad like most things. Now, Jay, from your point of view, NFPA, what's the biggest downfall it's given us in rope rescue? I think especially the earlier versions, whether it's the way they were written or more so the way they were interpreted. And before there was a global rescue committee uh, community, which obviously I guess there always was, but a strong one, which now communicates with each other, it was seen as gospel. And when it's seen as gospel, it's taught as gospel. And heaven forbid you go outside the NFPA. So that to me is the biggest thing where it, 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 it's taught a lot of things that aren't necessarily true. The old it's, 15 to 1 standard. Nothing like 15 to 1. I was looking at a webpage the other day and someone was using... Uh, uh, the, using the web as an opportunity to explain the 15 to 1 safety factor. Um, you know, that as well as maybe the more dangerous thing isn't what's actually written down, it's the interpretation of it. And it's who's interpreting it, and that knowledge is being passed down, and then that, that not necessarily wrong, that perspective is being reinterpreted again, reinterpreted again, and it's like a little tumor out there that we need to cut off sometimes. Uh, it's those two interesting sayings we always use, self-licking ice cream cone and drink your own bath water. That, you know, is one of the cons with the NFPA. What about the pros? What has the NFPA done that's really pushed the rescue world forward? Uh, one of the big things is consistency, obviously. Um, you know, and now that the NFPA is now being seen more as principle-based stuff, more as a foundational type thing, is providing a level of consistency, which obviously is really important for emergency services. The NFPA was largely created, not necessarily for firefighter safety at first, but from a liability insurance perspective. Wait, that's the same reason fire departments were created, to help insurance companies not have to spend as much money. So it's helped with that, but the consistency thing is, is really big and providing a standard. There's no clear, whether it's right or wrong, perfect or not, there's no clear 
standard uh, uh, expectations, main teaching points out there. Um, uh, I'm having trouble thinking of the term here. JPR. Thank you. <laughs> JPRs, which is really critical. And when we teach NFPA classes, that's how the whole class starts. What are the JPRs we need to do? Okay, now what equipment, what training facility, how many people we need? It's the foundation of us even building a simple course. And I'm going to go one step further. When we run non-NFPA courses, NFPA is really the only standard, as we mentioned. We take those JPRs and we run them on there. We ran a course for Canadian Special Forces. Ascend and descend a fixed line. Ascend a fixed line change over descend. They didn't do it with a belay system on, but we took parts out of that JPR, out of the NFPA JPR, because it is the only real standard out there that has that in it. And the NFPA doesn't say you need to use NFPA rated gear or anything like this, but it is a good standard to look at so that you have a good base of knowledge that you're testing all your students to. We're, we're teaching uh, the Canadian Forces again shortly coming up, about a month and a half, and they've asked for NFPA. And one of the things, well, well why? And one of the replies was, besides who they work with and all that, there is no other standard out there that, that summarizes some basic skills that are essential to being a rescuer. So even non-emergency services are looking at the NFPA to follow as a standard. So it's a, it is a benefit that it's out there and it's becoming more of a benefit as it's being looked at as a guidance. Well, some people have to follow it, but more of a, a document that provides a foundation and isn't too prescriptive. Yeah, and it definitely has done that. I'll give kudos to the guys and the girls that sit on the committees nowadays. It certainly opened it up. So the NFPA would then lead us into the fire service as an influence into rope rescue. And the pros and cons of what the fire service has done to rope rescue. And I, this is different than NFPA. NFPA is a standard. The fire service has used the NFPA standard primarily more than anybody else. They might have bastardized it and ruined it a little bit, but the fire service itself has got some pros and cons that it has created into the rope rescue discipline. And I'll talk about one of the pros on it, and it can be looked as a con is, the fire service is a jack of all trades a lot of times. You're dealing with people that you gotta be a hazmat tech and a rope rescue tech and a confined space tech and don't forget to shore up that trench tomorrow and jump on that water rescue. And so they've had to simplify a lot of those rescues. And so they've taken it down into its basics a lot of the time or as simple as possible. I think twin tension rope systems and the fire service is a great mesh because you're teaching less amount of skills to people that don't have the time to maintain a ton of skills. So Jay, any thoughts on that? Pros that the fire service have given back to the rope rescue world. Yeah, definitely coming up with common systems. You know, we always say that confined space is high angle underground. Uh, structural collapse, rope work is, is high angle over top of crumbly buildings. And the uh, dirt. Confined uh, trench rescue, all oh, this is high angle in the dirt. So there is a benefit to those skills being uh, taken across and we're learning them all and, and figuring it out. Also, firemen are very structured in how they instruct and how things are done, very paramilitary, and the military also has a lot of benefits to how we teach. One of the negative things, though, I, I find at the fire department is, is not necessarily related to rope rescue, it's actually the politics 
and we're not going to get into politics here. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Don't need to explain it. But 200 years of tradition unimpeded by change? Absolutely. It's all the politics in the fire department that actually do a disservice to almost all the disciplines being taught. And hopefully you see it in different jurisdictions, in different countries. We are becoming more emotionally intelligent. You can see it, the difference between the special forces and your basic infantry unit. Um, and between certain cities or uh, a volunteer paid on call versus career. There is some politics there that also is doing a disservice, which it's not increasing as fast. But we have a lot of forward-thinking firemen out there now. And for example, there's certain departments in the Lower Mainland for over five years, they've been using twin tension rope systems. On there's 11 one, mil rope. There's one, yeah, there's one that's, it's been almost, I don't know, close to a decade where they've been on 11 mil rope. And some departments are just starting to talk about getting out of 12 and a half. So the change is coming. Um, the great thing about the fire service in addition is the training happens. Um, you know, they get their guys trained, they have reasons to get their guys trained. They need to. And um, it, it, there's guys out there that are constantly learning. All right. So it brings me into the mountain search and rescue world. I mean, BC PEPSAR just rewrote the manual for the BC Provincial Emergency Program, SAR program. This breaks in a little bit into ACMG, Association of Canadian Mountain Guides. So what influences do we think that they have on? And I'll start off here again in regards to the ACMG. And this came up in the tower climbing section, which is part of one of the NFPA standards. When you start to question, well, who's actually legally allowed to teach you how to climb a man-made structure? And one of the answers to that is the climbing gym instructor program through the ACMG. It is actually considered a man-made structure. They teach belaying, they teach how to climb, how to top rope, how to lay ropes onto that, how to protect your students. And that's a definite skill that can and should be brought uh, over into the rope rescue world so that you can take those types of skill sets that someone else has already created in those safety systems and apply them to another field inside of the rope rescue discipline. Any other thoughts? You got, you know, ropes at rescue, throw it out the reed thorn there, rigging for rescue, Mike Gibbs, Kirk Moffner, not that he's with it anymore, Arnold Larson has started. I mean, those lads have been around rope systems. They probably have t-shirts older than me and I've been around for a long time. And, you know, they've definitely done some advancements in the system. So where do you think, what, what do you think's come out of there that's pretty decent? Um, well, I think that, they have to rig in so many different places. Uh, you know, some people may all say the same about urban rescue. It's not. A building's a building. A balcony is a balcony. A tower crane's a tower crane. It, you know, there's structural anchors. There we go. But now you go into the woods and you're in the subalpine and you have scrub. You know, these guys are really pushing their anchor skills to the limit. And it helps us to rig onto more things. You know, when we first got the fire department, oh, you need an anchored um, eye that's rated for fall pressure, blah, 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 blah. But we'll get on site, we'll get on the top of something, and all there is is a handrail that maybe at the top point is good for 125 pounds any direction. Well, how do you rig to multiple points there? And some of those lessons have come directly out of this, and not just terrestrial rescue. Uh, I've been working with a guy. Um, that works for a forestry company up north and he's been caving for 30 years and the amount of skills we talk about stuff 
that we're doing that we think is pretty cool and sort of on the cutting edge. Diminishing loop counterbalance in confined space. Cable's been doing it for eons. Absolutely. We talk about stuff at Grip and stuff like, oh, this is a great thing. Let's do this. And then you hear that they figured it out 30 years ago. Crawl to crawl bump. Crawl to crawl bump. Absolutely. And so there's a lot of stuff coming from them because of their environment. They've had to push their gear to more of a limit. Same with Eiders is a great place. I love reading the papers coming out of these SAR teams because they're pushing stuff. They're Tom Evans, if you're listening, keep putting it out there. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just fabulous to for us to learn. And it even makes our systems feel even more robust seeing what you push into. Now, that's a good point Jay brought up. And I mean, we're, we're going down this list because at Ronin, these are all different disciplines that we send our instructors and our rescue team leads to in order to get that variety of training. And he had mentioned the rigging, the anchor rigging for terrestrial people. Those folks, cavers and arb guys, arborists and girls, they rig like nobody's business. They rig the stuff that I even look at and go, that looks a little dicey. We get into rope access and structural, uh, like industrial rescue teams, their anchoring skills just aren't there. And I'm gonna have a bunch of hate mail coming to me from rope access guys. That's fine, I'm good with that. It's my next topic here. But it's true. When you go out and you rig with, with guys and girls that work terrestrial SAR or caving or ARB, they do stuff with rigging of ropes that baffles you. And you re- that's where you really need to expand these things. So that being said, moving into the rope access, pros and cons. I guess we just listed a con. Um, they're anchoring. As well, the mechanical advantage systems are, are a bit weak when it comes to it. I mean, that's a pro on when you're, you're going to go take some of this training, your terrestrial people and your cavers, they rig mechanical advantage as well, like there's no tomorrow. But I think the pros, you know, I want to keep this positive. The pros in regards to rope access is the single person systems. Um, you get a team of firefighters. I mean, confined space rescue, you can have up to 11 people on there. You look at your rope access, a good level three can pull a guy or a girl out of pretty much anywhere by themselves. And that's a skill set, just being that, that one single person that can do that skill. Any thoughts on that, Jay? Yeah, I remember when we first took our rope access course. So it's been around for a long time, but we did it in 2005 or something like Seven that. Seven or something, Seven, yeah. Seven, a while ago. And at that time, tell you the truth, you were not seeing IDs in the fire rescue world. They weren't being used. Uh, back then, obviously, you're using shunts. It's evolved to ASAP since then. Again, it's another device that was not being used in the emergency services rescue world. So one thing Robaxis has done has introduced a lot more gear to us that obviously complements what Mark said, uh, uh, single user systems where you don't have a whole team behind you. And that's one thing that's helped us as Ronin respond to sites. You know, fire departments, you know, expect a team of six, eight guys to pull off a rescue. A lot of the rope access skills we've picked up is why we can do things so lean. In addition to not just skills, rope access is pushing the gear envelope. What I mean by that is there's a huge need for rope access. Because rope access is work and not rescue, even though I know there's a component of rescue in it, they use their gear, it's work, 
There's a huge need for their equipment to meet recognized standards, which regulatory authorities want us to follow, or not just want us, tell us we have to follow. So for example, CSA, ANSI, CE. Across Canada, we have to use CSA gear pretty much everywhere for work, unless we're under rope access now, which is different. But this gear can now cross because of the need. You know, we were in, um, at the A plus A conference last year in Europe, and we we were informed that the ASAP and the Grilon are now coming out to meet ANSI standard. That means those two pieces of gear, and the ASAP is far superior than any typical rope grab out there. That means that that can now be used for work in BC and other jurisdictions across Canada that allow ANSI standard. They'll allow ANSI standard a lot quicker than CE. So hats off to the rope rescue, uh, rope access community for pushing this gear and continuing to push it forward and actually providing us more um, resources, not just for industry rescue, but for industry work. There you go. Uh, next one we're going to talk about is Arbor, Arborist. We just had Rich Hadier from ISC up here, uh, Jack Perry from Camp, looking at some Arb stuff. And I'll go out and straight up and say it is, if I'm climbing anything over about 40 to 50 feet, I'm climbing arb technique now. The whole ankle, knee, into my chest, like it's night and day. I mean, you're basically just walking up the rope. You're using your large muscles in your leg to climb. Arborists certainly climb. The other thing I got from arborists is throwing rope. Yeah, we've always thrown lines. We've used throw lines for high lines across expanses and things like this. I've seen good arborist riggers be able to basically sew up a tree with a rope and a throw line, hit multiple points, weave it in and out, just unbelievable where they can get this. And those are those anchoring skills that have a direct application in rescue because eventually, well, first recovery I ever did, I believe, was a dead arborist in a tree. And... It's one of those things where those skills that I learned, you know, last month would have come in very useful. I guess it's probably 20 years, 25 years ago that I had to do that recovery. Any other thoughts with ARB stuff, Jay, that you can think of? Yeah, absolutely. I I do a lot of work with uh, forestry companies and it's really good to see them get serious about being able to rescue their riggers out of trees. So you'll get some young guys you know, they spend four or five hours, they quickly learn how to use spurs and a belt, and they're going up and they're topping these trees, um, and they're bringing pulleys up to set their skyline systems up. And they've brought arborists in to teach rescue. Now, it's not fully compliant to regulation sometimes, because they're, they're doing arborist skills under, under a, a normal work scenario, but that being said, it's very effective rescue, they, it's very simple for these loggers to understand because they got enough to remember all day long. Um, and so it's definitely having impact on industry besides just uh, what they're doing. Well, that's good to know. Next one we're going to look at is military. We've done some work with Tom's trace system. We've done some work with military itself, different units from regular infantry right up to some of the SF teams. And the thing I find with the military is it's light and it's fast. They, need, they want devices that do multiple things, much more from like that climbing background. And there's not a lot of safety systems in the military systems. Uh, the trace system being down to, you know, six mil cordage basically. But 
thoughts? Like, is there, is there a future in that outside of places like baskets and confined spaces? If, you know, or is that too far to one side for your traditional or even your semi-traditional rope rescue, or even into your mountain or something? I think it's, it's one of those skill sets that's good to have. And um, it's a kit that you're going to have. It's nice and small, and we pull it up when we need it, which we're actually finding we're doing when we talk about when we're dealing with all the disciplines we've already talked about. Um, you know, it requires a high level of training. It has been proven to be used in industry where we have a lot of other hazards around um, heat, uh, lots of metal sharp objects, things like that. You know, um, and where stuff gets beaten up in industry. A lot of these systems, the SFUs are one-time use type systems and we're gonna chuck it when we're done. Not for practice, but obviously for an operation. And I have a hard time seeing that become a, a, a widely used thing because it's cost prohibitive. As well as a lot of these systems, um, these light systems we're looking at is all about cycling. If you cycle the device, uh, well, I believe it was 50 times or something like that, a full length of rope. Um, pardon me, I can't remember the exact number, but... There's a strength reduction that in the point, rope. There's a strength reduction and the gear needs to be changed out and not fixed, not updated, not tuned up. It's gone. And in industry, the moment we go up and down ropes, you know, that's our focus. These systems in the military, this is not their focus. This is a tool they have to complete the mission. But on a pro for this, I'm gonna throw it back at you with the military, the lightweight system in particular. It's the fibers in that rope that are breaking down. And whether that rope is six mil or 12 mil, they're being broken down. I think you're seeing uh, an expedient breakdown of it because it's a smaller diameter, you know, less surface area, blah, blah, blah than you are with your true larger diameter rope, but the same stuff is happening. And as these envelopes are being pushed, it is leading us to ascertain where the failure points are. And those failure points will be the same, whether that is small diameter or I'm now calling 11 mil large diameter rope, but um, that's definitely a pro on this. The more all of these different disciplines push the envelope in their discipline, the more we're going to get statistical evidence about the breaking strengths, about the use requirements. And I think what you're going to find in the future is, you know, it's not going to be this after five years, throw it out sort of thing. I think that you're going to find different ropes and different joining techniques of those ropes are going to end up with different requirements on them based on the use and the breakdown of them. Your whole static Kern mantle rope, I mean, it's probably where it used to be 100% of the rescue market. It's probably down to 70 or 65% of the market. You've got your Unicore or your Technicore or your blended constructions. You've got instead of, you know, a poly nylon or a nylon nylon, you've now got different Aramids. You've got Technorids. You've got poly polys. You've got all sorts of different styles of rope where we're getting different wear indications on that. Absolutely. And they behave differently too. Um, how they feel... Again, when we were in Europe uh, earlier last year, um, you know, there's there's discussion about how some of the ropes are being, some of these ropes where they're they're bonding the the sheath to the kern, um, 
or the mantle to the kern that they behave differently when they go through devices as well. So not just even strength, but... Um, well, even at Ronin, we're finding that our bonded ropes, our ropes that the kern and the mantle are put together, chemically bonded or heat sealed bonded, we're getting quicker and more excessive wear on the sheath than we have on our traditional static kern mantle ropes. Why do you think that is, Mark? I'm thinking it's because there's not the movement inside. It's not being allowed to slip, which is taking up some of that force on those devices. So it's going straight now into the outside of that rope, which is causing visibly more damage. I mean, that's, we have no qualitative science behind that. This is very subjective at this point, but it is something that we're looking at. We're working with companies right now, rope companies, putting ropes back in their hands to pull them and test them and see if there is any degradation in there or if it's just all cosmetic. Right? And these would be things, there isn't enough time on these ropes in the systems. I mean, we got PMI's Extreme Pro when it first came out, they were shipping it to us. And we probably have, what, 18 of them in service? You know, between us and probably Trask, we're probably the two biggest user groups, other stuff, maybe even VRS with Tom. But, you know, there's we're getting a lot of cycles in there. It'd be interesting to back down at Sprat this year to chat with those guys about that. So, is there any other influences that you want to add in here you know we've talked about a few that have you know pushed into the rope rescue world is there anything else you can think of i think industry has pushed in a lot um using some of these systems i think before we had industry equipment that people are using the classical window washer type stuff or swing stage type stuff and then we get all these disciplines and i think industry and how these ropes are being used in industry is affecting everything, whether thinking about heat and obviously rope access plays a huge part in this too. But, you know, the the whole, I'm interested to see how the ASAP evolves, ASAP evolves in industry. Like I'm interested to see it being used on a swing stage. Um, you know, another benefit about the ASAP is it converts into rescue for a two-man load if you have the right energy absorber on it. Um, I, I'm really interested to see in the next year once Petzl releases these ANSI devices in North America and I know I have a class tomorrow and I'm going to be discussing them and the potential of them and that that they're coming out and it's going to change things so I think that's something that we maybe have not seen the full impact yet but we're definitely going to see coming it'll provide even more insight into our systems now there, there's one there's all these different disciplines and there is one con to them all. Well, there's probably a few cons. I'm going to come up with a few lists. Let's Don't go with a large one. But one of the cons that I can really think of is, is the confusion of it all. Um, and what I mean is the balancing act of the equipment and the authority having jurisdiction. Whether it be a fire rescue service, whether it be a regulatory body such as WorkSafe BC, whatever province you may be in, you know, here we are using this great gear out of Europe where, you know, in Europe, typically, you know, max resting force they plan around is six kilonewtons. That's less than what we allow in North America. But then you turn around and the regulatory authorities say, we can't use those devices because they don't meet the local standard. And then it starts slipping into other gear and all this sort of thing. So um, that is one con is the balancing act. And that also goes with the develop of new gear. It's just like technology. The gear is developing so fast and there's so many changes happening because of technology that that's definitely a negative is trying to keep up with it, keep your crews up with it and making sure we're doing things correctly. And 
some people are apprehensive about moving forward because it's changing so quick and they're losing out on good stuff. And then I wouldn't be surprised if sometime in the future, and not us, that the wrong piece of gear is going to be used for the wrong application and the choice of gear, not necessarily failing or user error, the choice of gear, which I guess essentially may be a user error if someone picks it wrong, is going to be the instigator to an incident. Well, I've investigated three incidents where the cross-pollination of gear between disciplines is one of the mitigating, or not mitigating, one of the uh, contributing factors of that incident. And so, I mean, I guess we throw that out there with some caution. Go out and look at these things. Go out and get training from other industries. Take away from them what you can, learn the right stuff, and learn some of the stuff they do that we can't take away and the reasons why. Go out there, practice it, play with it, but be careful. Like I said, three of the incidents that I've investigated, contributing factor was directly related to taking a piece of gear from another discipline and trying to insert it in some other discipline without 100% knowledge of what that person was doing. That being said, this is the future of rope rescue. It's getting driven by the equipment uh, manufacturers about putting out new technology and new gear. That's being driven by the end user wanting stuff that does more, that's lighter, that's faster, that's shinier, that gets out there and does more jobs, more bang for their buck. And there'll be a balance somewhere, but it's an exciting time. I mean, I think I've been doing this for a few decades and I think we've seen more change in the last 10 years than we've seen in the 20 or 30 before that. So if you're out there messing around with gear, you know, like, for example, now with the, the new Grigri 2, you know, based on the diameter, we start miss, mixing around Grigri's with the IDs and creating systems. You know, if you're crossing disciplines in the field somewhere and you want to show it off, send us a picture. Show us what you're doing. And, you know, we're... We, we may give you kudos, we may be critical about it, but we're not being critical of you and what you've decided. We just want healthy discussion about these things and to stimulate more talk. Please share what you're doing out there because you know it's all about all helping each other and improving how we can help people in distress. Absolutely. Well, that's it for Rescue Cast number 10. Thanks for joining us. The next couple that we're going to be looking at, we're going to be talking with... Uh, Donnie about Grimp Day and some of the training and how that works out. We're going to be talking about uh, back with Jason about permits and we're going to do a special one coming up on transitions for veterans about, you know, we've hired a lot of veterans. We've had veterans move on to the fire service. We've had veterans leave us for different reasons and just getting out of the army and what that looks like. It's nothing to do with rescue, but being 47% former military or something ourselves, I think it'd be something that's worthwhile throwing out there. Well, that one will be more in uh, March when we go chatting back with uh, Sean on the other side of the country. And those who serve in the Navy and Air Force, too, might pick up something from it. <laughs> Anyways, that's it for me. Bye-bye.